millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week we review David Cameron's speech at Tory party conference with Anushakadian Stephen Bush and George Eaton. Then Stephen joins me and our sub-editor Yo Sushi to talk about cultural appropriation. What is it, and what's wrong with it? Well, Tory conference is over, and we've heard David Cameron's speech, we've heard uh, a rather obnoxious speech from Theresa May, and a beauty parade of all the other potential Tory leaders. But let's talk first about David Cameron's speech. I'm joined by Anusha Kalian, Stephen Bush, and George Eaton. Anusha, I'm going to start with you, because you watched it outside the hall, and that gave you a slightly different perspective to those inside the hall, didn't it? I watched it on iPlayer and I had my Twitter feed open next to me and I was really surprised at the conclusions that were being drawn by lots of the people who were at the conference. They were saying that this was an unashamed sort of um, lurch to the left for David Cameron. He was grabbing the liberal centre ground and I actually thought that the speech was the opposite. And I think it is a little bit dangerous to assume that just because the Tory leader is discussing poverty and inequality and diversity more often than he usually would to assume that this means that he's sort of moving to the centre. I think that's buying the Tory spin that he's doing so. I think actually he's trying to redefine the centre and it's actually quite right wing. Well, George, you were a bit more sympathetic to that line. And I have to say, having read the speech overnight, there is a lot in there, for example, about the number of um, ethnic minority Tory candidates, you know, people whose parents were refugees. It wasn't a speech that you can really imagine Margaret Thatcher having given, John Major having given, Ian Duncan Smith having given. So there, there is a point to that, that he, he did make a very un-Tory speech in the issues that it raised, even if the underlying policies aren't actually that left-wing. In tone, it was a far more liberal speech than Cameron was delivering before the election. He's not looking over his shoulder at UKIP anymore. You know, equal marriage and, and foreign aid weren't mentioned much or almost at all during the election campaign. It was striking just how often he mentioned gay rights in that speech, and he clearly wants to claim that as, as part of his legacy. But I think it's... It's obvious, on the other hand, he hasn't had some sudden conversion to social democratic economics. I mean, listening to Cameron, you wouldn't guess that public services were facing cuts of between 25 and 40 percent, that working families were going to have their their tax credits cut. And just as New Labour sometimes redistributed by stealth, it feels as if the Conservatives are trying to cut by stealth. So they're dressing up austerity as as reform. And um, and of course they're they're, they're shrinking to the state the state's levels that that Thatcher only only dreamt of and uh, tax credits are being cut while inheritance tax is being cut for for millionaires so fiscally it is a very regressive agenda um, but I think the Conservative Party itself is clearly far more comfortable with with social liberalism than it was in the past and you know, one Conservative pointed out to me quite a lot of people 
members left the party have equal marriage. So in some ways, that's why Cameron can now get standing ovations for, for praising equal marriage, for praising diversity that he couldn't in the past. And I think that's both good policy for the country and also good politics for him. Stephen, there's something, something that someone said yesterday on, on Twitter which struck me. We all had a big debate over the last sort of three years about how terrible UKIP was. There was this split on the right. And someone said, actually, in some ways you might say that the rise of UKIP has been good for the Tory parties because it's siphoned off some of the people who were a pro, opposed to the, a progressive social agenda. It's allowed Cameron to say things that he wouldn't have been able to say. You know, that, that block of people has gone. Do you think that's a reasonable thing to say? I'm instinctively against saying it's good for parties to lose votes, let alone uh, organisational capacity in the form of members. And it, it did. there were individual seats where UKIP was the difference between a, a Labour victory and a Tory one. I mean, he also, he did mention gay marriage, I think, in all but one of his conference speeches. You know, I don't support equal marriage, in spite of the fact I'm conservative, I support because I'm a conservative. He mentioned it last year. It, that has always been something which he has got religion on, in, in the words of uh, one of his aides. The big difference, I think, in this, this year's speech was that there wasn't a need to leave anything for the Liberal Democrats to announce. A year ago, things like Alan Milburn being appointed, that was signed off by Number 10. They do genuinely care about social mobility the problem is all of their solutions are bad i think this was basically cameron managing to it wasn't so much a land grab for labor territory it was a land grab for the bits of policy they'd given the lib dems and they kind of wanted to do anyway yeah that's exactly what i thought i didn't see a change in the government's stance on anything and also if you're talking about gay marriage i mean david cameron done that he's done it so it's easy for him to talk about it now so it's kind of like he was going over the battles that he's fought and won which is kind of like shoring up his legacy more so than trying to shift his party to a to a new plane george i want to ask you a bit about some of the other speeches can you give us a kind of thumbnail sketch of theresa may george osborne and boris johnson's speeches because they're kind of the ones who are considered to be the, the most i mean nikki morgan has also said that she mm. might she might run when, if and when the, the top of the party becomes vacant. But how did they position themselves in terms of what comes next after Cameron? Mm, so Osborne spoke with the confidence and, and the assuredness of someone who is now the, the clear front runner. And it was quite interesting that after giving some very personal interviews recently and you know, the, the China trip and the trip to the Fazlane Bay, some pretty big interventions, he made quite a low-key speech in the sense that it culminated with an announcement on local government funding and finance, which quite a, a big move, but a technical one. And he didn't make the kind of personal speech which prime ministers in waiting sometimes do when they talk about their family, they talk about why they're in politics, they talk about their mission. And I think that was Osborne pulling back a bit and recognising that actually the leadership contest could be a long time away. It, it may well come near the end of this, this parliamentary term. And, and does he want to, to, to go out on a limb this early on, given that the front runner often doesn't win? And then Boris's speech, he needed a good speech because he, he entered the conference having been overtaken by Osborne as the front runner. His project, his political mission was in a way predicated on the idea that Cameron wasn't going to remain prime minister, that Ed Miliband was going to become prime minister and it would be his moment. Uh, and so his challenge now is to, to recover in this, in, this, in, this new, in this new era. I think he did that quite well. I mean, it was pre-briefed as, as quite a serious speech, but actually... The opening, there were still plenty of, plenty of good lines. And me saying that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and his supporters have vested interests and interesting vests, I thought was... Uh, and, but then it was, a more, it was a more serious speech in terms of tone. And also he, he opened up quite a big dividing line with Osborne on tax credit cuts. Um, he's quite miffed at how Osborne's adopted the living wage which Boris had championed for a while. And now he's pointing out 
yes, by all means, let's have a living wage. That's great. But can we really cut benefits for for the same strivers we're we're, we're hailing? And uh, but it looks like. Osborne is very unlikely to, to U-turn on that. And Stephen, let's pick up Theresa May's speech because it was it was an astonishing speech in that it didn't get... I mean, it, it got her a great front page in the Daily Mail who said, woman with guts to tell truth. But James Kirkham in The Telegraph said it was it was ugly and cynical and to my opinion, mind, it was, a, it, was a, it was a heavily dog whistle on immigration. There was some talk about the cohesion of Britain not being able to be maintained with the levels of immigration that we had. Do you think it w- has actually damaged her with her constituency, which I guess in this case is, is Tory members? Yeah, I actually think the problem was it wasn't a dog whistle speech. It was a bit like, um, you remember that bloke shouting, Jesus, Fenton, Fenton, Fenton. <laughs> and it was about that, you know, the dogs didn't like it because the dogs kind of looked at her and it's like, well, I know what you're trying to do here. Yeah, I mean, one MP said to me, well, the problem is it's not her speeches, it's her record. You know, that she has, if you are anti-immigration Tory MP, from your perspective, Theresa May has been an utter failure because she has failed to stop the tides, uh, for the benefit of our listeners, I just did air quotes there, the tides of immigration uh, coming in. All she's done is she's successfully nobbled a British export in the form of, uh, you know, effectively we now, thanks to Theresa May, train a bunch of very bright people and then tell them that, and that they have to go and live somewhere else. Um, yeah, and some, someone said to me, and this is someone who I regard as a kind of core Theresa May supporter, they said, I just thought it was a bit embarrassing. Um, partly because I think her strength, um, particularly because Theresa May can only become Conservative leader if something happens to Osborne, you know, if tax credits really detonate, if there's some form of scandal. Her strength is, I'm a safe pair of hands, I know my brief, I'm a serious figure. That was not the speech of a serious figure. It also looked so panicked. And there are lots of people who are, uh, particularly there are lots of Tory women who are uncertain about Osborne's appeal. They just don't think he can replicate um, the Cameron magic. You know, one of them said to me, well, my mum fancies Cameron and she thinks that <laughs> she thinks that Osborne looks a bit evil um, and they're looking for someone. There are some Tory women who would like another woman. Uh, and a lot of them were just like, oh, but that's the sign of a panicked campaign. I just don't think it looks good to look that. And also it was it was vile personally, but she kind of wanted people like me and you to say that was vile. That was sort of the mission, was for the liberal left to give her some good headlines in the eyes of the Tory right. Well, but that's it- what I've written in the magazine this week, is that you know the Tories have got this problem of, of having, as she herself called them, the nasty party. And the problem is that when you can transmute that into strength and reliability and taking tough decisions and, and, and slightly slight selfishness, it's, it's not necessarily something that will turn people off. But when people feel that they're doing something bad, when people, when, when you say when the dog whistle becomes just a whistle, that then becomes something that people then feel bad about themselves for being associated with that brand. And it, I think that is a dangerous thing for the Tory party because that existing perception already exists in the same way that it's dangerous for Labour to be seen as soft on welfare because that plays to an existing perception that they have. Um, Anoush, I want to finish up by just by asking you, Jeremy Corbyn appeared at a, a rally in Manchester, which is relatively, I think, completely unheard of for an opposition leader to do while um, the government's party conference is going on. It was very well attended. It generated a huge amount of, of headlines. Do you think it was a wise thing to do for him electorally? I think that Jeremy Corbyn's association with that protest was negative from the start because if 
as we've written, a minor, a small minority of the, the people who were, uh, who were there protesting at the Tory conference were doing nasty things like uh, spitting at journalists and shouting Tory scum and generally behaving in a horrible way. And Jeremy Corbyn was associated with that from the start because he was supporting the, the general protest, not those particular protesters. And he was sort of forced to say that he condemned those actions. I actually think that's quite unfair on Jeremy Corbyn. I don't think he has to be associated with people who are doing that. Um, but... Because he turned up and spoke at the protest, he sort of perpetuated the problem for him in terms of his reputation. So I think Jeremy Corbyn was probably treated unfairly over that protest, but at the same time didn't help himself. Well, I think that's probably all the conference excitement we've got time for. Um, I think everybody's due a long overdue nap, maybe a lie down in a darkened room with a, with a bucket of gin and or, I know, George salad, whatever it is that you, uh, <laughs> you treat yourself to. Um, for the moment, I'll say thank you to Anoush and Stephen and George. I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. This week, we discussed adaptations in popular culture, so we went to see the new Macbeth movie. We talked about the BBC series of adaptations like Lady Chatterley's Lover and Cider with Rosie. And we discussed teen movie adaptions of Shakespeare, including the seminal She's the Man. If this sounds like the kind of thing you would like, you can find all the details about where to get our episodes on newstatesman.com forward slash S-R-S-L-Y. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Now we want to discuss a phrase that you often hear on the internet, which is cultural appropriation. It's something that's quite difficult to define. For example, when young women wear Native American headdresses at music festivals, that's seen as being cultural appropriation. Uh, a New York exhibition which invited white visitors to try on kimono was shut down because that was accused of cultural appropriation too. Yozushi, one of our sub-editors, has written a fine article in this week's magazine addressing exactly what the phenomenon is and whether it is all bad. I'm also joined by Stephen Bush, our Staggers editor, Yo, first of all, just outline to us, when people talk about cultural appropriation, what, what kind of thing are they talking about? It seems to be quite a broad definition, you know, it, 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 from, from white actors and musicians appropriating, appropriating um, uh, cornrows, which are associated with, um, more with, like, black people, and um, the headdresses, as you say, to, to people like um, Iggy Azalea, performing rap. Uh, again, a musical genre which has its uh, historical origins in, in African-American culture. So, Iggy Zalia, I think, is, so she's white and she's Australian. Yes. But as I understand it, she raps in a, in a kind of slightly, like, not, an, not in her original accent. Which is kind of what popular music has, has been doing since time immemorial. You know, um, Elvis Costello is not, it turns out, an American, yet he sings in an American way. Bonnie Tyler is Welsh. Yeah, she does um, amazing country music, and and another one is Dusty Springfield is a Hampstead girl. You knew that. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that is that is interesting. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's one of these things which has happened, but but it's become uh, a flashpoint for a lot of anger, um, as I think outside of the the music uh, element of it, 
um, people are becoming much more aware of their identities, be it racial, social, you know, in terms of nationality. Um, and people are getting very exercised about it online, which I think could be quite a dangerous, counterproductive sort of anger, really. Well, Stephen, we're just about to come up to Halloween now, and Halloween is, is like the sort of cultural appropriation of Christmas, really, because it's when you see, you know, sometimes extremely tasteless Halloween costumes. Is it okay to dress up as an Italian plumber for Halloween? Yeah, sure, it's cool. I mean, I think the, the thing with cultural appropriation is it's one of those things where I think mostly a reasonable person, there's just a, there's a sniff test, isn't there? Like, we, I might not be able to come up with an obvious difference between blackface and dressing in as Italian plumber, or even, like, blackface and, and you know, and, 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 like, doing your hair in a silly way but not backing up and being Mr. T. I can, there is obviously a, a kind of smell test difference between those those two things. And I think um, the, the line in Yo's piece that I really like is the, the idea that there is a kind of a, an Asian, I'm going to misquote it now, a black HQ, an Asian bureau that decides at what point something is cultural appropriation. The American accents thing sums it up to me. In, in the bit of uh, Bo where I'm from, like, you know, very few of my friends uh, are, were white. I'm not white myself. Um, but for the most part, when people wanted to start their own bands, they sung in American, they sung in American accents. They they emu they emulated American indie bands, um, with a, the exception of a small group of my Bangladeshi fans who emulated American rappers. Well, is that cultural appropriation? It well, just there, there seems to be, um, in terms of like today's online activism about cultural appropriation, the distinction which people seem to make is if a oppressive, powerful ethnicity or race or grouping of people take from an oppressed, less powerful group, then it's cultural appropriation. But it's such a distinction. Which, which is why I don't think Americans should be allowed to like Downton Abbey. I think, <laughs> no, I think there's a really interesting thing here of the fact that global internet culture is so often American-focused. There was a brilliant piece that... Um, the New Republic ran about um, from from Indians writing about the fact that all the kind of memes that get to them, all this sort of stuff that is is you know global internet culture is actually very heavily American. The references are very heavily American, and American culture is incredibly dominant in that sense. But I don't think you would ever get one predominantly white elite accused of appropriating something from another white elite of a country. So if you had white Americans dressing up as Downton Abbey characters, that would kind of be fine, wouldn't it? Well, there's, there's, um, in terms of people supposedly on like similar social levels or, or perceived as uh, equally oppressed, appropriating from each other, there is, there is anger about that, really, I think. Um, for example, um, I think it was this year, uh, a, a journalist criticised attendees of the Afropunk Festival in Brooklyn um, black Americans, uh, for appropriating the tribal dress of um, African tribes, saying this is American cultural appropriation of African uh, attire, jewellery, and things like that. So this this, this is um, someone criticising African Americans for borrowing from African traditional things. And the criteria which um, the writer said would excuse those those attendees was if they had a heritage or historical link, something to authenticate that relationship with the clothing they chose, uh, which I think is an impossibility, really. I think, you know, 
what what um, Stephen was saying about a smell test. I think that smell test happens at the point of reception when we see these things. The context at the point of reception is is the most important thing in this in this respect. I think because to those Afro punk attendees dressed in tribal African clothes, they weren't really broadcasting that. To, to the African audience. They were broadcasting it to Americans, saying we're proud of our African heritage. Yeah. They weren't saying, hey, um, dudes over in Africa who, who cherish these, these, these uh, traditions, you know, they weren't like, mocking that at all, really. Because if you, if, you, yeah, cause if you take a kind of fundamentalist view of it, you can't do, for example, things like participant observation in anthropology because that's kind of you're going in and you're, you're dabbling with another culture. I think that's... I think that's right. I mean, a lot of this is about power and a lot of it's about respect. I think that's the feeling, isn't it? If someone, for example, the Native American headdresses, which is a real flashpoint, is the feeling that something which is a, a sacred symbol has been taken and used as, you know, something that you wear when you go and get pissed in a field. And that's the, there's a very big difference between somebody doing that and somebody visiting an exhibition or interacting with that culture in another way. Is, is quite a, a, a already quite a loaded phrase, um, a loaded word, because... I think the closer word would be adopting, because nothing has actually been taken from mm. the the member of the Native American tribe, say, who who cherishes the headdress for its old ceremonial reasons. You know, they still can can you know treasure it in their own way. Um, it's just grown. It's just become part of the cultural language which um, the drunk festival goer has adopted. You know. It, nothing's been diminished from the original source. So is it really a theft, is, is a question I ask. One of the things I find most interesting when we talk about these things is how often people don't realise that what they see as the cultural symbol of one group has actually probably been initially borrowed from somewhere else. I mean, we, normally these debates tend to focus on fashion and dress, I guess, because it's just very easy. easy targets, to, to really. you, you look at something and you see that looks wrong. But, you know, it can happen with food as well, and people get very upset about, you know, like... You know, you, nicking the food group. I mean, I, I've got a terrible feeling that I read a Guardian piece that said that barbecues were cultural appropriation, no. but that might have just been a sort of terrible cheese dream that I had. But you a know, most of from the who? cavemen. Well, but but most of the staple foods that we have have kind of you know, rice is not indigenous to Asia. Potatoes are not. You know, they they moved around, and actually, yeah. almost every continent has ended up with with someone else's food. And the same thing with you know, with with words. I think cornrows are quite an interesting example because there is. I'm sure you would be able to find people plaiting their hair in that particular way, you know, probably even centuries, maybe millennia ago. I mean, but also with the cornrows thing, so I once in the distant past did have cornrows briefly. Um, yeah, if someone thinks they look good in cornrows, in my experience, they're mostly wrong. Um, <laughs> but, you know, fine, if you, want, if you want to have cornrows, you know, like, it's very painful, it takes a lot of time, like, you know, knock, knock yourself out, frankly. Um, it's just, yeah, it's this point of, yeah, like, Nothing of substance has been, um, has been, yeah, it's a bit like, so, you know, the, the tiny minority of people in, uh, in the Tory party conference, uh, you know, they were behaving in an aggressive way in the name of beliefs I myself hold, but my commitment to left-wing values hasn't been taken away or besmirched because some idiot spat at someone. And if someone wants to get cornrows in Shoreditch with their silly moustache, well, fine. I suppose that that's I think that's quite an interesting point. Yeah, I agree that is their own funeral with one of those kind of Victorian strongman moustaches, hopefully. But um, Dorian Linsky, who uh, the music writer who wrote a piece about um, about Native American headdresses, one of the things that he once asked was, when we attack cultural appropriation, are we actually just saying that it's bad that we just don't like it? Can you ever say something is culturally appropriative in 
and and good because the Rolling Stones, for example, complicated relationship with with blues music, they don't get attacked now. Maybe they did it more at the time so much for it because people sort of assume that they have taken that culture and made something good of it. The Beastie Boys, you know, white rappers. I don't see a lot of hate on the Beastie Boys for for what they did. I think people who think a lot about music can excuse it because this is how music has always been composed. Um, Elvis is someone I I, I mention in in my article and how um, people still do periodically raise the argument that he stole from... He do black music so selfishly, use it to get himself wealthy. Yeah, yeah. That's my that, M&M, uh, that, reference for the day. Yeah. Well, well um, but if you think about the, the history of, okay, rock and roll, which led on to all, all kinds of other kinds of music, like rock music. Um, Chuck Berry, a black participant and one of the p- pioneers of, of rock and roll music, um, took, you know, very liberally from one of his favorite musical genres, which was country music. Maybelline, everyone knows Maybelline, mm. can't you be true? Well, anyway, um, Maybelline was, was very closely adapted from a country song, a hillbilly song. Um, just as, um, you know, what's that date, the song? Is it 60 Days or something? He's got a song which is basically when the saints go marching in. Hey. You know, you know it, there was a real promiscuity where black musicians felt entitled to take um, from white sources, just as white musicians take from white, uh, black sources. You know, banjos associated with hillbillies. But one of the came things from... that came up in the in the cornrows row, which was Kylie Jenner. I get my Jenners mixed up, but I'm fairly sure it was Kylie Jenner, the youngest of the kind of Kardashians. Mm. And Amanda Stenberg, who was in um, the Hunger Games, said that the problem here is with people who want to take black culture, but but you know, but sanitize it. So the same problem with Iggy Azalea being that actually somebody like um, Azalea Banks is too kind of scary for the mainstream music establishment. So what they want is they want the kind of coolness, the kind of glamour uh, of black culture without having to deal with any kind of black people, which white audiences might kind of feel slightly freaked out about. Well, you can criticise the industry for having that kind of attitude, but the work itself created by by musicians and things like that is slightly outside of that. You know, you, you judge art be it pop music, film, books, or uh, visual representation, by the laws of art, you, you can't just apply the laws of politics around it and then criticise it for that. You know, if you're going to um, criticise that element of it, you, you, you look at the structural flaws in the industry which allow that kind of um, behaviour to go on. You know, um, it's, it's not as simple as pointing, much as a child would point, to a tree and say tree to signal that they understand the word you know people you can't just go around saying cultural appropriation cultural appropriation as if that in itself was a negative you know i think we've probably been quite um yeah i guess there are more complicated things but Stephen, have you ever seen something that you have just looked at and gone oh god why why have they done that um the weird thing is i know that once we're once we finish recording i'll i'll immediately think of one probably from university when I just did do an awful lot of like oh, I can't be bothered to have this this fight every day. Um, but I think I guess because I'm I'm you know because I'm mixed race I think I am I feel more aware of when occasionally you just kind of hit up against this barrier of oh no I'm too black for this conversation apparently oh no 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 I've become white now for um, and so I've I've always been more aware of it as a kind of um, because the, the par- it really, you really should read it once it, uh, it goes up online. In fact, you should do better than that and buy the magazine. <laughs> the par- yeah, the, the, the bit I most like, which I'm looking at right now, is this 
But in a, by opposing it unilaterally under the banner of racial justice, activists often end up placing themselves on the side of those who insist on terrifying ideals of purity. White and black should never mix, and the Australian born a year's alias should leave rap alone. And to be honest, I feel I've had more of a problem with kind of like, oh, I wouldn't have expected you to like the chili peppers, or, oh, what do you mean you like fear of a black planet? Your mum's white. Like, that has been a much bigger problem in my own life than... I mean, I hate most of the people who now live in the bit of, of East London I'm from, but not because they wear silly outfits. Well, that's one of the, I think in, in gender terms, that's why I find it really interesting when the NUS last year tried to pass a motion that said they, were go they wanted to ban drag for cisgender people. And I wrote a piece at the time that was, was to that same point, which is that that is actually an, an, inher an inherently conservative move. Because what you're saying is that there are some clothes which are appropriate for men and some clothes which are appropriate for women. And wearing the wrong ones in your leisure time should be banned, essentially. Like, the idea that a man wearing a skirt is, is so kind of horrifying and wrong that it must obviously be a, be a piss take of some kind. Well, you know, RuPaul, of all people, once said... Um, RuPaul the Great Philosopher. Yes. I'm pro RuPaul. <laughs> well, is it, we're born naked, but everything yes. else is drag. Yes, yeah, which, which weirdly kind of chimes very, very closely to what Judith Butler was exploring in Gender Trouble all mm. those decades ago, where she was uh, talking about how um, our notions of gender, be it masculinity or femininity, are, are you know, a lot of it is, is performed. It isn't innate to our being. We perform these things, we learn these things and conform to them. Well, you know... We, but that's quite useful, isn't it? Because that then allows you to draw a distinction between Katy Perry wearing um, a geisha outfit mm. and an actor performing in yellow face or black face. Because yeah. you are moving from things which are a performance to things which are kind of inherent characteristics. No, but the thing is, I think uh, what, what Judith Butler was saying was our day-to-day -day interrelations with other people are, are also part of that big performance. Our identities are performed in, in that, that kind of all-encompassing way. I think race is... is not entirely dissimilar in that respect, you know. Um, I don't agree with Butler, by the way. I don't think there is this um, you know, absolute kind of performance element to all of our identities. I think part of it is innate. But that's a conversation yeah, for say, a different... You know, <laughs> seamlessly opens up a huge vista I, I, of incredibly contested terrain. Probably that's a good point at which to, um, at which to leave it at this point. But yeah, you yeah. and I can come and argue about Judith Butler in our special like late-night Judith Butler <laughs> sessions. But for the moment, thank you, Yo, and thank All you, right, Stephen. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Yeah. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. 
Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.